We, we understand the importance of Palm Sunday, the celebration of those who looked on Jesus as the coming Messiah, those who praised Him as He entered the city. In reality, we know that was short-lived, for there was a plot and was about to be hatched, and He would be judged, He would be mistreated. They not only would go along the edges of the law, they'd break the law to do that. For they saw him not fulfilling their dream for the future. And when I read this passage about his trials, there were three of them, it breaks my heart because there were people there that observed him as he healed. They watched his kindnesses and his love shown. Their only concern was they were losing their power. They were frustrated that they were not going to be able to fulfill what they had desired. Jesus had been betrayed by Judas, and he had been arrested by the religious authorities there in the Garden of Gethsemane, there on the Mount of Olives. I've stood there in that place. Many of you have also. He was taken to the high priest's house where Peter, outside, denied him three times, standing around a fire built by Roman soldiers. It didn't take him long to fall away from his commitment. Then Jesus was subjected to this illegal and hastily convened religious trial. You know, just one of the, one of the restrictions on, on any trial given in the Jewish community at that time was it had to be during the daytime. It had to be during a time that people could come and be a part of it, and it was done at night. The law mandated that this could not be done, but they did it anyway. After his arrest, those hearings just seemed to go on at a time when they were trying to get away with what they were doing. There was a religious trial, two of them, and then there had to be the civil trial before Pilate. And in between, Herod was involved. Jesus was led around and mocked and made fun of when he was in jail there. You, you heard the passage. The guards there blindfolded him and struck him and said, Tell us who hit you. Jesus never jumped through hoops to entertain people. Christianity is not about that. They had already decided and he knew their hearts. And he stood there silently. I somehow tremble when I think about the God of this world standing there, being mocked and derided, beaten and scourged and crucified by the worst of people, sinners like us, and yet he said nothing. Years ago, I was sitting at lunch with my uncle and his best friend who was the, the chief superior court judge in DeKalb County Court in Atlanta. Oscar Mitchell was an elderly gentleman, but he held sway over the court there. He told us a story of something that had happened a week before as he was walking in from the parking deck to go into the courthouse. There was a woman in a rush who was late to appear in court, and as he was walking up the steps rather than the elevator, because the elevator had been taken down for a while, He was slowly moving up there, and this woman goes by him, and she literally shoves him, and she says, get out of my way, I've got to be in court. What are you doing? And she takes off upstairs. In a few moments, he goes into his chambers, puts on his robe, 
and walks out and realizes the first person on the docket was that woman that shoved him. He said he looked down and he, he looked and he said, I see you made it just fine. He said she wept through the whole trial. That's what we're doing sometimes. We forget that the God of this world watches us. He hears our thoughts as well as the words we speak. He knows everything about us. He knows our intentions, our attitudes. He knows when we have our own agendas that are not a part of what he should do. He reads that. Does he judge us? Not in this world, but in the next. And yet these people stood there and, and they had witnessed him perform incredible miracles that none of them could even imagine. And yet they judged him harshly because he didn't fit in their well-planned system of thought. John MacArthur notes that by the time Christ, Israel's judicial system was pretty well-oiled machine. It, it, they knew exactly what to do. In fact, if there were 120 men that were heads of households in a community, they had their own little Sanhedrin there. It would be made up of about 23 men. But what Jesus comes before is not that group, but the large Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, the great Sanhedrin as they would call it. In that group, there are a number of wise people, scholars and theologians, people who knew the law, and they were watching him, and they're the ones that incited this entire gathering. The law mandated three requirements. In a criminal proceeding, there had to be, number one, a public trial. Number two, there had to be a defense for the accused. And there had to be a confirmation of guilt by two or three witnesses. This was required. But the last point was crucial because in a just verdict, there had to be that. There could not be false witnesses. And yet there were. People accused him. And yet he stood there. And he listened. They were judging the judge that one day would judge them. Think about that. They were judging the only salvation they would ever have. Many of them missed the mark and did not realize who he was. I want to take note this morning of three things that happened in this event because it's so important for us to understand this. Because as we live out our lives, we are passing judgment. If we go out in the morning and we decide that it's been a, going to be a bad day and it's already been a tough day and, and we act out and we're rude and, and vindictive and, and indifferent towards people, if we're cold and calloused, no matter what our situation's like, we're judging Jesus when we do that. Because people know who we represent. They know we go to church. They know that we're people of faith. And they decide that that's what Jesus is all about. One of the saddest things to do as a minister is to have to go visit somebody that you just love to invite to church and you know they don't go anywhere and you speak to them and, and then they say, you know, I'd love to come to your church, I really would, but there's a situation with one of your members. And that's a hard pill to swallow. I've listened to people over the 40 years I've been a minister tell me stories of people swindling them, of not paying their debts of lying, of being unfaithful to their spouses. 
All these different sins that are common in the world we live in today, but should not be common in the church, scar us. And we judge Jesus when we do that by the way we lived. Notice this, that Jesus was mocked and blasphemed. They despised him. They wanted a standard of of righteousness, a form of righteousness, but they didn't want his form of righteousness. They wanted to be able to dress up and and, and come to synagogue and look good and and mingle among their friends, their circle of friends, and, and, and everything to appear okay, but they forgot. There was more to it than that. You see, many of them had forgotten that a long time ago, God had set up a system of sacrifices. And every sacrifice given, none of those sacrifices truly would save you. They were all basically a a redemption toward the eventual sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God that would die for the sins of the world. But it had been so long they'd forgotten about it. They didn't remember that, that all those sacrifices were looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice. One that they could not pay. That had to be paid for them. I wonder sometimes if we sit long enough in church and lose touch with what is going on in our heart with God that we're going to find ourselves in a sad place where we think what we're doing is pleasing God. And once He's happy, we've got the rest of the week to do what we want. The blaspheming theming that happened there was anger because they resented the fact that Jesus held them to a higher standard, a standard they could not reach on their own. The irony is that the Ten Commandments were given to a people not to give them a standard to live by, not at all. It was to prove that they could not meet that standard on their own. Just like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus by night and and he said, I've kept all the law ever since I was young. Jesus read his heart. He knew what his weakness was. He knew what that private sin was. Jesus, being God, looked at him and said, go and sell all you've got and give it to the poor. And then come back. And it said he went away bitterly weeping. Because he had much wealth. It had nothing to do with what he had. It had to do with how he possessed it. Or rather how it possessed him. Billy Graham said many years ago in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In in an incredible crusade there. A statement before a congregation that was in the stadium. It was two thirds of the ones that were there were, were, were on welfare. And he said this. He said, please understand that greed is not the sole possession of rich people. He said, some of the greediest people I've ever met were poor people. He said, they just weren't good at keeping the money that they had. And he said, greed can infect any and everybody. It can infect the child on the playground in kindergarten. It can infect the person living in the retirement community. We have to be careful how we hold things. And God requires that of us in a very special way. Notice that Jesus was charged by the very rulers that were looking for him. He was pointed out as an evil person, not just just a bad person, not one that could be judged, but this was a capital trial. He was to be executed. The reality is the standard that he put before them, they couldn't keep up with. 
He was the Christ. He called himself the Son of Man, which I think is a wonderful title. He uses it 82 times as we read in Scripture, in the Gospels. But the Son of Man does not reflect on his relationship with mankind. It reflects on his headship as an example to all of mankind. And he identified himself in that way, saying that I am the example of what you should be. Follow me. But that dug deep into their consciousness. They didn't want a standard to follow. They wanted somebody to rubber stamp what they were already doing. They weren't really concerned about getting approval or doing what's nice or right. They just wanted to live out their life in the way that they were comfortable. And the reality is, in the midst of that, they forgot that he was the Son of God. The council understood that the reality was this was God standing before them. He had met every single qualification given in the Old Testament. Every one. But they struggled with that because his end result was not what they required in their heart. He was not a conquering hero that would destroy uh, the situation they lived under, the malaise of life under the oppressive Roman Empire. That's not what he came to do. Because God understood in Jesus Christ that the problem with mankind was not their immediate situation in, in their political environment. It was bigger than that. It was much larger than that. He understood the problem was within it was within the soul of every man and woman and child. And he came to liberate us from that. I get tickled sometimes. That's why I've not had a television for almost a decade. I, I don't want to listen to the news. But invariably, uh, the news falls into this rut. And you all know how it works. You know, if there's a tornado somewhere, they don't go to the metropolitan, cosmopolitan neighborhood. They find somebody in the backwoods. Somebody that's not going to be so articulate or eloquent. And they ask them about the storm. Or they find somebody that's already angry standing in front of a pump paying $5 a gallon for gas and then say, tell me what you think about this. Well, none of us are happy with it. But the reality is our problems won't be solved in Washington, D.C. Please hear me. Our problem is not the White House. It's this house. God is not concerned about what's going on in the world. Let me say that again. God is not concerned about what's going on in the world because the world has always been heading in, in that direction of destruction. God is concerned about what's going on in His house. What we are doing. Are we reflecting Jesus Christ? Because you see, the reality is, to begin with, it was to be the Jewish people that would see the Messiah, accept the Messiah, embrace the Messiah, and then take him out to the world. And each Jewish person, each man, woman, and child would have become a part of the great kingdom of priests to take the gospel to the Gentile world. That's what he had planned. That's what he wanted. That's what he desired. But they rejected him. Aren't you thankful today that in that rejection, Jesus didn't turn around and go back to heaven and forget about us? No, he didn't. He loved us. It says he came into his own, the Jewish people, and his own received him not. But then, to as many as received him, speaking of the Gentile world, 
To many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And that's why we're here today. That's why we have that hope. They were mocking him, and they looked at him, and they said, Are you the Christ? And he said this, he said, You say that I am. And he said it that way not to be mean or vindictive or angry, but the reality was they didn't believe. He knew they already had this planned out. They already had the system laid, laid there. They, they were just moving through it in a very treacherous and a very hasty way. The reality is, as much as they thought they were getting rid of a troublemaker, they were a part of God's plan. Isn't that amazing? My mother used to have an old saying, and you've heard it yourself, I'm sure. Your parents or grandparents said this, that sometimes the Lord sharpens his axe at the devil's grindstone. And what that means is simply this. No one is outside the purvey of God using for his purpose as even Satan. And as much as the people in their anger and their bitterness wanted to take the Messiah, this man that... that and, and there many people call themselves Messiah, but none perform the miracles and authenticated who he was like he did. Their bitterness wasn't that he was the Messiah. Their bitterness was that he wasn't their kind of Messiah. They wanted somebody that would tickle their ears and make them feel good. But yet they brought about the greatest gift we could ever have. Jesus died for us, for you, and for you, and for you. He died because he loved you. He did something that we could not do for ourselves. He did something that God could not wave his hands and say, you're forgiven. God is just and he's righteous. And because of that, a price has to be paid. Jesus paid that price for you. Now, what does that call us to do today? Well, first of all, it calls us to be aware of what we're doing. Because as you leave this church you suddenly become a statement of who Jesus is and what it means to be a Christian. People are watching you. And there are a lot of folks that are going to be involved in barbecues and Easter egg hunts and events in the next seven to ten days. And they're not going to understand what we're talking about this morning. They're not, know, they're not going to know about the Jesus that died. They don't want to hear about death and blood and, and, and beating and mistreating somebody. They want to Think about barbecue and, and uh, Easter egg hunts and kids dressed in beautiful outfits. That's where you come in. You tell the story. You share the truth. You sit on the street corner as kids are, are hunting Easter eggs and you pick up that egg and you tell them that the power of Easter is like this egg and open it up and show them an empty egg and say... When the tomb was opened, it was empty. You see, Jesus did not just die for us on the cross. And we always use the cross as a symbol, but truly the, the best symbol for Christianity is the empty tomb, isn't it? Because the empty tomb, we have hope. Yes, Jesus died, but he rose again. They weren't paying attention to him. They were angry when he said, tear down this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. They didn't understand he was talking about himself. And he did. Please understand this. Our world's in a mess. 
And I've never wanted to be an arbitrator or, or a, a journalist over the problems in the world. The, problem, the world has always had problems. It will always have problems. It will always be broken. But here's the question. Are you willing, are you willing to be a part of the change agent in this world for Jesus? So let them know. Let the world know that there's something bigger and better. You don't have to stand on a street corner and preach. You might bring a child with you next Sunday. It's never been to church before. It may not feel comfortable in church, but you're going to make them feel comfortable and treat them as your family. It may be the opportunity to ask a neighbor to come with you that won't be attending church and just tell them to come. There's nothing wrong with coming just on Easter. I love those folks. I think it's a special time. But you're sitting here not as people watching a service. You're here to participate. You're the missionary that will go out of this building and make a difference. And what's amazing, one day when you step into heaven and you stand before the great white throne judgment, they're not going to judge you by what type of dress you wore to church or what committees you sat on or, or whether or not you came without missing a Sunday. That was real important when I was a kid. You're going to be judged for what you did with Jesus' name and life. It's not going to be the, the CEOs of, of corporations and the heads of committees that are going to be acknowledged in heaven. It's going to be the little old ladies that keep bringing the children that are orphaned and abandoned to church because she knows that the Holy Spirit will implant in them something of quality to change their life. That's what it's all about. Please be that person this Easter and begin a tradition that can change the world. Let us pray. Father, I thank you by your Holy Spirit for what you do for us day by day and moment by moment as we trust you. You guide us and you give us direction. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that's seeking to grow in the Lord, to be more, to do more, to find their place to serve, I pray that you would speak to them right now, even in this moment, that they would take on the challenge of becoming the person that they should be for your kingdom, that they'd take that, that step of inviting somebody, just bringing a friend or a neighbor. And the difference that would make if each and every one of us would do that. Father, speak to someone who has a decision to make in their heart this morning to accept your gift of salvation or to come and be baptized or join this church. Whatever the decision is, Lord, we know that you know it already and you honor the commitments we make. And May someone step forward and make that decision even today, even now, and be blessed forevermore by being faithful. And We pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.